Lord, in your mercy, I pray that you will meet with us in this morning hour, as we, you already have um, in our worship together. And I pray that you'll help the teacher and those who are here to listen, that together we would corporately learn and understand more the truth of the gospel so that our hearts would, and our affections would be raised. We're all needy of that, myself included. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, someone before the... So Ryan's a, before the church service started, says, so you're going to give us a kind of clear, down-to-earth lesson today? <laughs> and I was like, okay. All right. It's good, it's, good to, it's good to get a little feedback every once in a while. <laughs> I, I, asked my, I asked my wife after the lesson last week, she says, what do you think about that? She says, you might want to kind of, you know, land the plane a little better or something like that. <laughs> uh, so we'll... We'll make our efforts today, all right? We'll make our efforts. Um, if you remember last week, we spent, we talked about a lot of things, and we have been, but we spent last week primarily thinking through the implications of the Trinitarian dynamic of Genesis chapter 1. Um, in the beginning, God, so you have the, the, the Father is creating um, by the agency of the Word through the effective power of the Spirit. And you see that particular triad at work in Genesis 1, right out of the gate, God is not ever separated from His Word or His Spirit. That became a very important, um, a very important understanding within the early church as it began to wrestle with the Old Testament. And I didn't say this quote to you, but I think it's probably worth saying now. Uh, Bavar Childs, um, who is someone I have a lot of time for, Bavar Childs said, "The battle, the battle for the Trinity in the fourth century." So you think about what happened in the history of the church. We move into the second century. You have figures like Irenaeus and Tertullian at work. Very Trinitarian in their modes of communication. Uh, But then in time, as you move into the third century, and then especially into the fourth century, the relationship between the Godhead becomes an acute problem needing to be sorted through. Um, How is it that that God, who is one, um, can speak to himself in some plurality of being. How does that work? Especially recognizing that God's being and his essence is singular, but there seems to be a division or a plurality of personalities at work within that Godhead. This is this became a live and complicated issue in the life of the early church, especially, and we don't think in this way so much in our day, but especially in that world, when a chain of deities was probably understood to be um, self-evident. In other words, you might have a supreme god, like someone like Zeus, um, or uh, and then you would have lesser deities down the way. Um, and so that a lot of Christians, especially those within a group known as Arians, tended to view uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the second person, we would say the Trinity, as a kind of di- divine figure, sure, but an intermediary divine figure somewhere along the chain, but not co-equal with. I mean, we just said the Apostles' Creed this morning, right? Um, not not co-equal with the Father, but of a lesser order, um, but more than us, right? So you have this sort of kind of uh, line of this, this gradated line from greater to lesser, and, and this this is rather important because when we begin to speak about God and we speak about Jesus, we use the language of um, well, the technical language in the creed is consubstantiality. When it comes to the substance of what it means to be God, whatever you can say about God 
is predicated fully on the Father and the Son and the Spirit equally. And learning how to talk about that became really important. Did we did the did we do the Gloria Patria this morning? I can't remember the glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Was that in this morning's liturgy? I think it was, right? I mean, that that was a kind of fourth century fight song. You, you can think about uh, you know uh, the, the 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 band in the in the stadium. It was dun 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 dun. A glory. It was a fight song from Athanasius in the fourth century against the Arians who said there was a time when he was not. I mean, the second person of the Trinity is created. And this is the part that might be a little bit troubling to you. And there are Bible verses that can be appealed to to support that claim that he was created. Lots of debates over this. So how does one handle these particular matters? So the whole relationship that you find in creation as you think about the Old Testament and the New Testament witness that God, the Father, never operates in his creation of the world apart from his word and apart from the Spirit, and we saw that the Spirit prepares the ground for the Word to do His activity of creation, and then we see the effective power of that. Let there be light, next phrase, and there was light, right? Split the land and the sea, do that, next phrase, and they were splitting. Right? So that's the kind of operative move that you have working and where the, where the Word of God is effective to do His work. Today, I want to move us into Exodus, and spend some time here because, um, and this, I didn't plan it this way, but this actually does bring the larger kind of abstract discussion about God the Father as He relates to the Son in co-eternal communion with the Spirit. It brings what we might consider to be rather abstract doctrines, very important doctrines, I would say, but somewhat abstract, and brings them right down into the world of our existence um, in the redemption of Israel in the book of Exodus. And so I wanted to think particularly this morning with over two matters, and I'm not sure I'll get to the second, right, but I'm going to tell you where I want to go. I'd like to talk this morning a bit about the significance of the divine name in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, the revelation of the name, which I would argue is central to a Trinitarian conversation about the Bible. What does it mean for God to name himself? How do we identify this particular God? And what does the naming activity of God involve in Christian life and existence? And whether we think about it this way or not, when we come together and we confess our faith together, I love, and our, we do it every week together. Corporally, we're confessing what we believe. And when we do that, we are naming God, right? In that activity, we're naming the identity of our, of our God. And that naming activity is significantly related to the book of Exodus. I'd like to talk about that first. And then secondly, I'd like to talk about um, the encounter that Jacob has with God at the river Jabbok, because that has something to say about God's triune identity as well. We, we may get there. If not, we'll do that next week. All right. So um, if you have Bibles or phones or some way of looking at the Scriptures, um, I'm in Exodus chapter 3 for a little bit. And then we'll go to Exodus chapter 6, and then we'll move on to Exodus 32 and 33. All right, so Exodus chapter 3. Uh, this is, um, at least at one point in time, before my children became Philistines, but at one point in time, uh, they loved um, this, <laughs> the story of the burning bush. Um, I'm, just, I'm only saying this because we're, my wife and I were just talking about our children in church. I mean, this is... You know, if, if you have any ideas, let us know. Uh, um, 
<laughs> Matter of fact, I told Nate, Julie and Craig Ogard are offering a class on parenting children. I said, go take notes. Go, go there, but we'll, we'll listen to it. Um, so Exodus chapter 3 at one point in time was a favorite in our house, still is. I mean, this, I can hear my middle son Jackson saying the, the story of the burning tree again, right, out of that Jesus storybook. It's a fascinating narrative. And it's, I would argue that Exodus chapter 3 is somewhere near the core, and I don't want to be reductionistic here, but somewhere near the core of the Old Testament's wrestling with the identity of the God of Israel. Who is God? That's a big question. Now, a lot of times within Christian circles, especially in the classic Christian tradition, and I affirm this tradition, I affirm this, but we tend to wrestle primarily with what is God questions. And as what does it mean for God to be God? We're raising questions about the nature of God, the essence of what it means for God to be God, unlike creatures. And the Bible is, I think, very interested in that question, but it also is very interested, and if I could put it this way, seems to put this foot forward first, and that question is not abstract questions about what does it mean for a God to be a God, but who is God? A, a narrative question. A storied question, so that if we were to line up the God of Israel and a sort of panoply of other gods in front of us, that we can pick that God out and say, that's who God is because, in the Aristotelian terms, he acts, his character is in accord with the plotment of his actions. Character is plot. So you want to know what God's character is? You want to know who he is? Then we look at the narrative and the story of his existence with Israel. And that's at the core here of Exodus chapter 3. You know the story, right? Moses has just killed an Egyptian. Um, it, that, that did not go well. Um, so then he's you know, out of Dodge and he goes into the land of Midian. Um, and he meets Jethro and his daughters. Uh, he, he marries one of Jethro's daughters. Then the Midianites are kind of fascinating in the biblical narrative. They're always portrayed positively. Um, you know, Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law, um, gives Moses some very good advice in Exodus chapter 18. He encourages Moses to think through his leadership style. And Moses takes the, the advice of his father-in-law to heart. Uh, Mo, uh, uh, um, his father-in-law is, is a... Uh, is a priest of the Moabites. We don't really even know what that means, but there's something there about the Moabites within the biblical picture that they are presented in positive terms. And Moses marries a Moabitess woman named uh, uh, Gershom, or no, no, uh, Zipporah, sorry, I forgot it, Zipporah, um, who saves his life in the next chapter in the weirdest Bible verses that I know of, right? Um, I mean, you know what happens in the next chapter 4? Now there are, you know, God just told Moses to go, and he says, okay, I'm going to go. And then the next verse is, they're out in the wilderness on their way to Egypt, and God's trying to kill Moses. It is weirdo land. I, I, I mean, if you can figure it out, let me know. Um, and then I guess uh, Zipporah is carrying a, a circumcision kit in her purse. Uh, or something, I don't know. But all of a sudden, she's circumcising her firstborn son, Gershom. She's smearing the blood. I think that's at the heart of what the, the story, why we have that story still. It's the same language of blood smearing that we have in the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, where they do on the lentils. Um, so she's smearing blood on Moses as they did the blood on the door. And that functions in a way to cause... God's intended wrath to kind of move over and pass over. So what we have, I think, in Exodus chapter 4 is a progenitor, a kind of figural anticipation 
through a very bizarre story of what in time would happen for the entirety of the nation. There would be blood and God would pass over it. But that, but, so he marries this woman. He's in, he's in Midian. Um, and he has children with this Midianite woman. And for all intents and purposes, I don't, I don't want to overread into the narrative, but for all intents and purposes, Moses seems to be having a pretty, um, good life. Right? I mean, he's no longer in the hustle and bustle of the, the Egyptian world. He's no longer bearing the burden of his Hebrew identity in an Egyptian context. He's free from that. And here he is now in the land of Midian with a good father-in-law, a good patriarchal setting. He's got a decent business going on out here with the sheep and everything seems to be going well. And in a paradigmatic way that we see with Moses, this is how the book of Deuteronomy ends. Deuteronomy ends with claiming that Moses was a prophet like no other, but he set on a trajectory of prophetic activity that was in accord or in in line with him. In fact, Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter 1 is a call that, that sounds very much like the call of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So Moses sets a kind of paradigm, um, maybe we'll use the platonic form, we might say, of what the prophetic activity looks like amidst God's people. And we see that happening right here in Exodus chapter 3. Why? Part of the character traits that we see through all of the prophets, and Moses starts us out of the gate on this, is an Israelite arrested by God. That's what happens to these prophets. I mean, they're not really interested in doing it. You remember the story about Elijah and Elisha, right? I mean, here's Elisha, and he's got his plows. He's out in the field plowing it up, getting ready to, to plant something, and all of a sudden here comes Elijah, and he says, let's go, God's called you. And he says, well, let me go tell my mom and dad goodbye. No, nope, we don't have time for that. It's time to go right now. And what does he do? Burns his, kills his cows and he burns the plows. I always wonder how mom and dad felt about that, but he did that. And then there he goes. He's off with, with Elijah. What about Isaiah? I mean, you, you know the patterns. Um, in the year that the king died, I got drawn right into the throne room of God and had this weird encounter with serpentine angel figures who put coals on my lips. And then I was set off to do his work. Amos the prophet, what does Amos say? I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of the prophet. Who am I that God should call me? You have all this, this particular type or pattern is established right here in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is leading a rather agrarian life in the best sense of that term and, 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 and a rather a placid life, we might say, at this point in time in the narrative. And God says, enough of that. Right, I'm going to intervene in your life, Moses. And he does so in this miraculous way. He sees a tree, and it's not being consumed by the fire, even though it's on fire. We would all, and what, what's the, the line? Let us go see this wonderful thing. Well, we would do that too, right? So here he goes off, and he sees the tree. It's not, burned, not being burned. It's not being consumed. And then a voice speaks from the tree. And now we know all bets are off. I mean, once this starts <laughs> happening, I mean, you realize... Um, tomorrow won't be the same as yesterday. And that's exactly what happens for, for Moses. And God says to Moses, take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And they begin to have this interlocution back and forth. At the core of this back and forth conversation between God and between Moses, and what does God say? I've heard the cry of my people. They're, the cry of their oppression has come up before me. Um, interestingly enough, that's very similar to the language that's used in um, Jonah to describe the Ninevites, uh, the wrong people. God heard the cry of their oppression as well. Um, but here he says, that, I've heard my people's cry. I'm going to send you. You're going to be the means by which I release my people. 
And what does Moses say? Well, he does what Jeremiah does in Jeremiah chapter 1. I'm not fit to do this. And God says, well, you know, this is the kind of way that God tends to act with prophets and when they're recalcitrant or they don't want to do what they're called to do. He, he, he pulls, you know, parenting 101 phrases out like, well, what, why am I going to do that? You're going to do that because I told you you're going to do it. I mean, that's <laughs> end of conversation. Um, and, and that's exactly what's happening. You, you, you're just going to have to do this. Um, and then Moses says, you realize he's not going to get away from the call of God on this, on him. And then he asked the million dollar question. When I get there, they're going to want to know what is your name. Right. Um, and that is crucial. It's, it's a huge question. If we get to it today, in Genesis 32, when Jacob is wrestling with God at the river Jabbok, God asks Jacob a question. What's your name? And then Jacob, at the end of the narrative, reverses it and says, oh, and by the way, what's your name? Who are you? With no answer given to Jacob. In other words, Jacob asked the same question that Moses asked. What is your name? Who is this person that has touched my hip and now it's out of place and I'll never walk the same? I knew you were a special creature. I knew that you were divine. What is your name? And God does not answer him. And it's as if in the now, the, the kind of canonical shape of the Pentateuch, with Genesis 32 creating some space to prepare for us what's going to happen in Exodus, it's as if God says to Jacob, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not going to answer your question right now. I'll have to wait for Moses to answer that question. Now's not the time for me to tell you what my name is. I'm going to let Moses know what my name is. And here he asks um, Jacob's question at the burning bush, and now it's time for God to speak clearly. What is my name? You tell them, Ehye, Esher, Ehye sent me. Now, does that help, right? Uh, I mean, and, and, and it's, it's a hard, it's a hard phrase. It, and it's a significant phrase. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I am who I am, right? And, uh, I tell my students at Beeson who come and they take, you know, Hebrew and, um, they take some Greek as well. And we require four semesters of Greek and four semesters of Hebrew. I mean, these, these students are tried by fire, God bless them. Um, and uh, I, tell, I tell Hebrew 101 students right out of the gate, I say, listen, um, if you think that your knowledge of the Bible now and the original language is going to um, solve all of your problems, I just need to let you know that's not the case. And I get that kind of question all the time from people um, in various churchly contexts or teaching contexts, like, I want to come to Beeson and take Greek, or I want to come to Beeson and take, I don't hear this one as much, Hebrew, I don't know why, um, but I want to come take Hebrew, I'm like, well, come on, you know, and, but then I sort of press, why? And the reason why is, and understandably, I mean, there's some truth to this, because I'll have sort of access to the thing itself rather than through translated form. And I tell students, and I think what's underlying that is, and then I will have more security in my knowledge of the text itself. Now, from one angle, that's true. Um, from another angle, though, it's not true. Why? Because translations, and I thank God for translations. I don't know which one you use. You know, my translation theory is, um, you know, my, whichever one, one you're willing to read. You know, it's like, whatever you want, you know, go ahead. They're all pretty good, actually. Um, at Beeson, we use the English Standard Version. I really like the NIV, you know, even though I kind of grew up in the in the world where they called that the, the new inaccurate version, but I don't think that's true. Um, uh, but, you know, the NIV, the ESV, whatever your translation choice is, 
whenever a translation is made from an original language to a target language, decisions grammatically and syntactically have, and lexically have to be made. In other words, you can't say, um, uh, and he said, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am, or I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be, or I might be who I will be, or, you know, you can't, you don't do that. You, you've got to make a decision, and hopefully it's a good decision, and most of them are, but you've got to make a decision and go with it. Once you get into the language itself, you realize, oh my goodness, there's a level of ambiguity here. This is the imperfect tense, or the imperfective tense in Hebrew. Now guess what? It could legitimately mean grammatically all by itself, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I am who I will be, or I might be who I will be. I mean, it could be all those things. And if you want to know my opinion on this, which is about worth two cents and a cup of coffee, my sense is what um, God is doing here is making a claim that He is who He will be. In other words, I, I actually tend to prefer glossing this ehya esher ehya as I will be who I will be. And um, that might sound like God's playing cat and mouse with Moses. In other words, God's maybe doing what he did with Jacob at the river Jabbok, and he's saying, you asked me a question, but I'm only going to give you a kind of obtuse answer. I'm going to keep this thing as an act of veiling instead of unveiling. Even my own you know, dear, dead, departed theologian that I read and, and yield to so much, Karl Barth, I mean, Karl Barth thought this was a cat and mouse game that God was playing with Moses. You want to know my name? Here's my name. No name. Right? Let's move on. I mean, that's what Barth teaches. In other words, he suspends the moment of revelation. This is not revealing, it's concealing divine concealment. I don't think that's right. I don't. I think this is a legitimate moment of God's self-unveiling to Moses. Moses, you want to know what my name is? which is so linked and attached to my character? Do you want to know why I was slow or did not answer Jacob back at the river Jabbok? Because this moment here, when you go into Egypt and you bring out my people from oppression and you see me deliver them in the miraculous ways in which I will and I bring you across the Red Sea and dry land and I lead you for 40 years by a cloud at night and a pillar of a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and I lead you into the land of Canaan the land that I promised your father Abraham way back then when you see me doing all that redemptive stuff you're going to know who I am my name the revealing of my identity is linked to this particular moment in my revealing of myself to my people in this act of redemption. Who am I? I'm the one who will be what I will be. As this narrative unfolds, you already know my name. You know the four Hebrew letters, yod Hey, vav Hey, Yahweh, Jehovah, whatever term we use to talk about a name that's unnameable, really. Um, but you know those phonemes, you know those letters, um, but the significance of my name, the character that's attached to my name, so that you know me in an implotted narrative and can pick me out and say, that's God acting according to His character. This is the moment in which you will see that in a unique and privileged way. A way that Abraham and all of his progeny before you and the patriarchal narratives in Genesis, they were awaiting this right here. I want to show you more about this. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. This is a weird verse. 
has caused all kinds of interpretive hurdles. And I'm not sure we'll get past all of them, but here's, here's another one. Verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Verse 2, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am... And do I have any chalk over here? Let me make this. We'll get, we'll get class, classroom-like for a second. I am Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. We see. Very good. Um, I I have students every one once in a while ask about getting Hebrew tattoos. Have I told you this before? I mean, this is really kind of fashionable among undergrad Christians. Um, have I told you this before? Oh, I was in the in the whirlpool out at the um, the YMCA when we still lived out in Pelham. I was out the whirlpool at the Shelby County uh, YMCA and. I'm not real chatty at that point in time, but I'm, after I've done some running and sitting there, some you know strapping young man gets into the whirlpool and he's got um, the Hebrew letters Aleph Mem Nun Aman on his arm, which means faithful one. Um, and I said, "Oh, uh, faithful one, huh?" And he said, "Yeah." He said, "How do you, you know?" So we started talking, and I thought, "I'm gonna have some fun with this guy." <laughs> I said, um, "I said, do you realize that they put the feminine form on your arm?" <laughs> and uh, and he looked at me like a deer in headlights, and, and uh, I said, "I'm just teasing. It's not. It's not true. It's not true." And then another time, this is this is yes, permanent. So it's not going anywhere. Another time, this is true. And you language people, Jim, you'll appreciate this. Um, I had an undergrad from Sanford call me on the phone, and he said, um, "I would like to know what it looks like in Hebrew to write in him." And I said, "Do you want to get a tattoo and on the phone?" And he said, "He said, yeah." I said, are you sure about this? He said, I think I am. I said, well, I said, come by the office and I'll give you a few options that you, you can have on this. So he came by and I showed, because there's a couple ways you can do that. And, and I said, um, and on his way out, you'll love this. He said, now, uh, I just want to be sure. The him here and in him, that's Jesus, right? And, and I said, well, you know, if that's not how pronouns work. I mean, if it's Jesus for you, yeah, but there's not a particular Jesus Third masculine singular pronoun. I mean, it's just him. That's the kind of... Anyway, it was funnier in the moment. Um, <laughs> so we have here the, uh, the Hebrew name Yahweh. Now, th- this is what we're talking about because I... Um, that That's God's personal name. Uh, to make a distinction between that, the tetragrammaton, the, which means the four letters, um, which was a name that was not spoken... Matter of fact, if you watch Mel Gibson's The Passion, um, if, and if you ever watch it again, it's a hard thing to watch. But if you watch it again, you know, they did all this in Aramaic and then some Hebrew and then there was some Latin and Greek thrown in as well. But you'll notice at times, even in the, um, in the closed captioning at the bottom, that they'll say something, or the, the subtitles at the bottom, um, the name. The name has said this. Hashem. Because they wouldn't actually say the name, they would actually just say, scare quotes here, the name, right? Because that is a holy name. You don't, you don't, you don't articulate it. And in time, what happens when generation after generation does not articulate something? You forget how to say it. I mean, no one knows how this was actually pronounced. We use the word Jehovah. And I think Jehovah's fine, actually, I mean, to use this. 
Why? Because this lame right here um, is what's called, well, I won't get into the details of it, but whenever it's read out loud in synagogue setting, I make my students in Beeson do this as well. When you come to the Tetragrammaton, the four letters, we don't say Yahweh or Jehovah, we say Adonai. Right? Um, so where did they get Jehovah from? Jehovah is, this is the English Jehovah, right? Is taking the vowels from Adonai and putting it on these letters. So you have, that, that would be a J, that would be an H, that's a V, Jehovah. So they took those vowels and they stuck it on there, and that's how we have that, and, and that, that's fine. I mean, it's just, but, that's God's personal name. All the other names, El Elyon, Elohim, El Roy, um, Yerah, I mean, all these other names are what people have de- referred to as appellatives. They're describing something about God. They're saying something about His might or His power or His grace or His care. They're descriptors. They're modifiers of God's being. But that right there is special. Um, and in fact, my colleague has just written a, a book on the Trinity. It's a really good book. Carl Beckwith is his name. I, I commend it to you. I think you can get it on Amazon. Um, and, and, and Carl said he thinks that the, what you have in the process of redemption, Old Testament and New Testament, is a recognition that that name right there is the unique name of God, the God of Israel. And in times, Christians have get, been given the proper grammar to identify that God right there as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's an aspect of naming. So when you come here to Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, it says, God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am Adonai. That's my name. And listen to this. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Anybody remember what that is in the Hebrew? El Elyon. That's right. God Almighty. But by my name... Tetragrammaton, four letters over there. I did not make myself known to them. And if you think about that verse, you can go, Houston, we've got a problem. <laughs> right? Because it just you know Genesis chapter 18, right? Here's Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre, and the three visitors come, and all of a sudden, it's Adonai. It's Tetragrammaton talking to Abraham, and Abraham talking back. In other words, the patriarchs were not unaware, if we can use this language, of those four Hebrew letter, four phonemes. They weren't unaware of that particular name of Israel's God. That wasn't something new on the redemptive scene. So what is being claimed here in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2? Again, I think it gets to the heart of what we were saying with the Jacob narrative before. Not that they did not know the name per se. But they did not know the significance of the name in light of this particular redemptive moment. Because this redemptive moment here is the moment which will infuse this name with the substance of the character of our God as a redeeming and merciful and self-giving God. Uh, I'll make an analogy on this to the New Testament as well. Um, Jesus ends the uh, farewell discourse in John uh, chapters 14 through 16 by moving into John chapter 17. And do you remember what he does in John 17? Um, He he prays. 
And it's the longest prayer that we have in the Bible. Matter of fact, I think of John 17 as kind of holy ground place in the Bible. Like on analogy again to Exodus chapter 3, it's like take your shoes off because we see Jesus in praying activities all the time in the New Testament. I mean, I was just reading in Luke this week that the disciples came and they found him praying. And then he was praying. And he went over to the far side of the lake so that he could pray. And we see Jesus praying all the time. But the actual content of Jesus' prayers, we don't get that all the time. And here you have John 17, which is not just you know a two-verse prayer, let your name be glorified as Jesus raises the little girl from the dead. We've got a whole chapter where, I don't know if you feel this way, but I kind of feel like the curtain is being pulled back a little bit and we get to see God talking to Himself in triune communion. I mean, this is the Son talking to the Father by the Spirit. We get a little entree in John 17 into the very inner dynamic of God's own inter-Trinitarian self-communication. That's a big deal, right? And by the way, my understanding of John 17 is that it is not merely indicative of what Jesus said. I think it is that. But it's also an indication of what His inter-Trinitarian prayer within the life of God looks like even now as our raised high priest. And what's he doing? He's praying for himself. He's praying for his disciples. And he's praying for you and for me all the way down through the ages. May they, may those who believe on account of what these disciples say, may they be one. And he goes on. You remember what the last verse, though, is of John chapter 17? The last verse is, I have made your name known to them, and I will yet reveal it further. See, this, this is Exodus 6-2 logic, I think, right? Did they not know Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey? Did they not know? Did the disciples not know the divine name? Of course, they knew the divine name. But Jesus is saying here, "But I've revealed to them the uniqueness of the character of that name, in light of my person and work, and more importantly, in light of what I'm about to do tomorrow." Because what do you have, John 17? You move right into John 18, and where are you? You're in the Passion, All right? And He's revealing the character of who He is in this redemptive context. Old Testament, New Testament, the God who raised Israel from the dead is the self-same God who raised Jesus from the dead. And we see this here in Exodus and John, all centering around the significance of the divine name. What is His name? His name, His identity, His person is linked to these redemptive moments when God says, I will be a God for you. I will move toward you in acts of redemption. Even though you have not moved toward me, I will move toward you. Right? Um, what's, what's our time? Oh, we, we're good. So, um, let's, uh, I wanted you to see this one last bit here at Exodus before we uh, get out. It's Exodus chapter 34. Again, if you have Bibles. Because this brings us full circle in the theology of Exodus to the naming of um, and the significance of the divine name linked to these redemptive moments, right? Um, Exodus chapter 20 is the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me, right? I am God and God alone. I'm, I'm with kind of Luther and the Reformation tradition that understand the first commandment as the commandment with everything else in support of it, kind of filling out what that means. What is the commandment? I am your God and you shall have no others. That is at the heart of what it means to be in covenantal relationship with God. And the way in which the Decalogue is presented is kind of either or. In other words, either you're going to have no other gods besides me, or you're not going to have me. It's either or. Right? And, and it feels brittle 
and it, and it is brittle. It's it's fragile in that sense. It can be broken. And what happens as you move on in the narrative of Exodus? Lo and behold, they break it. Right? And do, and we shouldn't be surprised to see it. You know, Moses is up having a, an encounter with God on Mount Sinai. And the people are down there. And of course you know the story. Aaron gets all the gold and they, they fashion out these calves. And, and in the story, as you kind of move through the story, um, when when Aaron gets caught and Moses comes down and he's obviously not a happy camper, um, Aaron says, I'm not sure what happened. I, I had all these gold, this gold and I, I toss it into the fire and I'll jump these calves. Um, he's like, wow, I mean, I, that, that's a good one. And, um, and when Moses is in communion with God on the mountain, God stops him mid-sentence and he says, you need to go down to, and notice the words here, it's kind of scary, your people. All right. Um, and Moses goes down and he hears the sound of warfare. And this is one of those places where maybe the knowledge of the original language helps, if not troubles a little bit more. It's more of the, um, well, I don't, I'll, we've got mixed company, so it's, it's, it's the sound of Bourbon Street. Right? I mean, I think it's, no, it's not just warfare, but it's, it's illicit activities. It's, it's a mess, right? And here Moses comes down and he sees it. He's obviously shocked and stunned by it. Throws down the tablets that God has written on, breaks them, um, and this looks like it's it. And God says, I'm going to make good on the Decalogue. I'm going to kill all of them, Moses, and we'll start over with you. A deal I've never been quite sure why Moses didn't take. I mean, especially with the way in which these people became such a burden to him for the rest of his life. He's like, you know what? All of them gone? At least he could have named 10 or 12. Like, okay. You know, I'm, no, anyway. Um, and, and, he's, and then what does Moses do? In Exodus chapter 33, he intercedes for them. And then Moses, in a very calculated turn of phrase, says, they're not my people, O Lord, they're your people. Remember, he said, go down to your people, and that guy said, ah, not mine, they're yours. Uh, you've committed yourself to them, have mercy on them. And then we come to what I think is probably the zenith moment in Exodus. It's moving toward this. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. Your, your face will melt off. right? Um, but I'll let you see my back. And then, and again, I have to admit, the narrative is a bit, uh, it's, it's a bit um, like hitting speed bumps, okay? So maybe various traditions have come together in the way in which they've been formed. But after he does this being hit in the cleft of the rock, then in the same context, I believe, in Exodus 34, where, where Moses said, please reveal to me your glory. Now, so I don't think we've left that question aside. Now we come to this. Verse Four. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands the two tablets of stone, and then the Lord descended in the cloud. And he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name, and it's Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Adonai. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? He came down, and he proclaimed Adonai. Who proclaimed it? Adonai proclaimed Adonai. And then he goes on in the next phrase and he says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So this is God preaching. And he says, Adonai, Adonai, the Lord, the Lord. It's a strange turn of phrase. But then he goes on to explain it. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. 
He forgives iniquities. Do you see the significance of that in this moment? In other words, the Decalogue was kind of either or. Well, they broke it. They broke the covenant. But here's God saying, but this is my character. I forgive iniquities um, and transgressions and sin. But also, I by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he did so. Why does he do that? Why does he take them for his inheritance? Why does he pardon them? Because now, in this apex moment in the narrative, God is giving an exposition of the significance of his own name. You want to know who I am? A merciful I'm kind, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm quick to relent. My nose, this is the kind of the Hebrew idiom, my nose doesn't get red real fast. I mean, I'm a parent, my nose gets red fast, right? And he's like, my nose doesn't get red fast, I'm, I'm long-suffering, I'm patient. I visit loyal, loving kindness, chesed, that Hebrew term, I visit that all the way to the thousandth generation. But by the way, I also can't look past injustice and I don't turn a blind eye toward the guilty. And I do visit transgressions to the third and the fourth. But do you hear the difference to the third and the fourth versus to the thousandth? Yeah. What do we have in the portrayal here in Exodus chapter 34? We have a portrayal of God, merciful and severe. Wonder who God is? He's merciful and He's severe. The rabbis called these attributes in Exodus 34 the 13 midot, um, M-I-D-D-O-T-H, or character traits of God. And if we kind of, if we take that number 13, just kind of, kind of fiddle it to get to that number. But if we take the 13, nine of them are merciful and four of them are severe. And I actually think that tells us something about the way in which the balances fall. I mean, his, his instinct is to be merciful and to be kind. His instinct is to always show kindness and forgiveness to those who repent. But you've read the prophets. You've read Nahum before. But those who refuse to repent and remain stiff-necked, God can be severe too. He's not someone to be trifled with. He's not my buddy or a genie in a bottle that we keep on you know, the mantle to get us out of a tight fix. He is the God and creator of the world. He is merciful and He's severe, but His mercy far outweighs His severity. And whenever there is repentance, God is quick to forgive. And what is he saying here in the book of Exodus around this theology of the divine name? And we know that the name linked to the whole of the Bible is Trinitarian in its character. What is he saying? I want you to know who I am. I want you to know what my character is. My character is that my disposition is to be merciful. It's who I am. And, um, but not to forget that my severity is not to be trifled with either. And that kind of gets to the sort of Reformation logic of where do we find refuge from God? We find refuge from the severity of God in the mercy of God. We don't go looking for it somewhere else. We find it actually uh, in, in Him. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul makes a very interesting turn of phrase. He said, um, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon Him the form of a servant, and being made in likeness of humanity, uh, he became a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. So G, you know, the second person of the Trinity 
takes on that which was something he did not have. That was his act of self-giving and self-denial. He became human. And then what does the next verse say? And he handed over to him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is directly quoting there Isaiah 45. And in Isaiah 45, the prophet is very clearly talking about every knee from the nations surrounding bowing the knee to Yahweh. Right? And here Paul is telling us you cannot talk about the identity of Yahweh or the one whose knee that everyone's knee will bow to without in the same breath talking about the identity of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. The revealing of the name, the handing over of the name, the linking of the name to acts of redemption is completely tied to the person and work of Jesus as revealed by the Holy Spirit. So that particular revelatory dynamic of the name, um, the Bible can't talk about that without using Trinitarian ways um, of speaking about it. Okay. All right, uh, we have a few minutes. You want, you want to ask any questions? You want to bat some things around? Uh, Jim? British poet laureate John Dryden said that you were talking about translations. He said the best translation is only seven percent effective. And so it's uh, and so Don can tell you his uh, reading of Cyrano, the Brian Hook translation of Cyrano the Bergerac. I just think how far surpasses uh, others that I've seen. Even keeps the rhyme. Intact, which you know you can appreciate that it's difficult enough to translate, but to keep the rhymes there. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, yeah. It might be interesting. I haven't had a chance to do this, but uh, you know, the, have you looked at the Jeffersonian Bible? My mom was telling me about that, where he cut out the different translations and compared what they all had to say about a certain part. Yeah, it'd be an interesting study. In the, yeah, the effective. And if my memory serves me correctly, Jefferson also kind of edited what. Well, he he like found what well, he found appellant to rationality. <laughs> now, I, I, you know, I always we 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 noticed this, you know, and I I believe that you know, well, it's going to get in trouble right now, but you know, I do believe that our country is sort of built on the foundation of a certain kind of inheritance of Judeo-Christian values or whatever you want to call that. But um, but I do think it's kind of worth remembering. You know, when we were in Philadelphia, we saw you know the Liberty, the Independence Hall, and the Liberty Bell. And then right across the street was the, the 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 headquarters of the first American Philosophical Society, which is linked to the same time. I mean, you know, the Philosophical Society was sort of born out of Enlightenment principles of rationality, which are often, you know, linked in an autonomous way apart from divine revelation. And I, unfortunately, I mean, as much as as highly as I think of Thomas Jefferson, I mean, he he's Exhibit A of someone who said, "I'm going to let the autonomy of my own reason <laughs> certainly shape my approach to the Bible, not vice versa." Yeah, and and um, that's not good. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I'm sort of not that well versed in all of this, but I, I know that when Jesus used the word, when he was being, you know, slammed by Jesus and he said, I am, yes. they were extreme. And so it isn't that broken. I have actually had some, not a few years ago, had some of the people that I was talking to, as soon as you say that Jesus is. Yeah. It's an offense. The Trinity is very powerful, but also very controversial to people that don't. When you say that Jesus is God and He is yeah. I am, and that, so that that's why it is yeah. very powerful. And what you're, you know, like yeah, yeah, it's a stumbling yeah. block. That is the stumbling block. Yeah, people would say 
Yeah. Yeah. Trinitarian logic is an offense. And I would say the greatest, or, or at least some of the greatest of minds in the Western and Eastern intellectual tradition have given their minds to thinking through these Trinitarian dynamics. And it's not without rationality, but it's a certain kind of rationality that's shaped by revelation. And that's not, that's not always going to be affirmed in a sort of neutral environment of idea sharing. It's not. And I remember as a teenage boy, flying to a Christian camp in North Carolina from Tampa, Florida up to Asheville, North Carolina and being on the plane and being challenged for the first time I met some Jehovah's Witness they called themselves The Way but I'd never really encountered them and this very seemingly faithful and interesting woman told me on the plane I believe that Jesus is the Son of God just not God the Son I'd never heard that particular phrase and for my 15, 16 year old self all of a sudden you know, that was the first time I thought, well, I've not, never thought about it that way. I've had a lot of assumptions about this. So this particular matter in the Christian faith pops its head up regularly. right? And uh, so it is. it remains a challenge and something for us to give ourselves to, I think, regularly. Yeah. Okay, we better go. I know. <laughs>